This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. This season, we are discussing the fruits of the Spirit and how we find through literature ways of understanding love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and generosity in literature and how those become resources for us. Today, we're going to discuss with Philip Yancey, The Virtue of Patience. You won't hear it explicitly discussed in the interview, except when Claude and Austin and I are talking. But when I was discussing John Donne's devotions with Philip Yancey, I realized that the virtue that John Donne was exhibiting was patience. It was suffering, and it was learning to suffer well. For those of you who don't know Philip Yancey, he's an American author, and his books have sold more than 15 million copies in English and have been translated in over 40 languages. So he's one of the best-selling contemporary authors, which is why when I started the interview, I neglected to have him introduce himself to listeners. I, have, I suppose I assumed everyone knows who Philip Yancey is. In this episode, Yancey will be discussing his recent book titled Undone, a modern rendering of John Donne's devotions. This is coming out with Rabbit Room Press in 2023. If you have not read any of Philip Yancey's books, I highly recommend them. His most popular is What's So Amazing About Grace, but I personally love Soul Survivor and his recent memoir, Where the Light Fell. Enjoy this conversation with Philip Yancey about John Donne. Today we are going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit patience as we try to understand what it is that the scriptures are talking about. This word that doesn't even really exist in uh, Greek, but instead um, it comes from the Latin for passio, for suffering. And so our understanding of what patience is, I think, has been lost over the century. So maybe we can reclaim it today in our conversation I wanted to start with a quote from Karen Swallow Pryor, and I know I was just joking with you guys, but I think this is true and everyone needs to know this. If you are talking about theology and literature in 2023, you kind of have to talk about Karen Swallow Pryor because her book on reading well, it it moved us all in a really good direction with finding the good life through great books. And I've talked with her before because I was actually writing The Scandal of Holiness when this book came out. And I was so scared. Someone asked me to review it. And I was like, she wrote the book I wanted to write. But she doesn't. She does lay an amazing foundation. And she writes so much about the virtues that we are supposed to be crafting ourselves towards, these human excellencies mm-hmm. and how these books do that for us. And I love her discussion of patience because she took a twist on it, right? She really is talking about Jane Austen's persuasion. And if I would have picked a book on patience, that's not the one that I would have picked because I don't think I was defining patience in the same way that Karen does. So here's Karen's definition of patience from the opening chapter there, or not opening, but it's the chapter on persuasion. The essence of patience is the willingness to endure suffering. And if you at all know the the character and the protagonist there, definitely the willingness to endure suffering constantly, whether it's her duty, whether it's for those around her, whether it's to give up the things that she loves, particularly Captain Wentworth, but the, the ability to willing, willingly endure suffering is patience. Do you think that's a good definition? Do you guys define it differently? I think it's a really good definition. It's not the one that I would use, but that's one of the reasons I think it's good. It's not the way I tend to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to think about patience in the sense of the accelerated age we live in, which mm-hmm. imposes pressures to do a whole lot and to do a whole lot fast and to keep mm-hmm. up 
And keeping up becomes harder and harder because acceleration only primes itself. Mm -hmm. It just continues to compound. It's the mm -hmm. logic of acceleration. And so our lives continue to feel more and more harried. And so patience then to me is as a fruit of the spirit, it's also a really countercultural call. And uh, I said before that our benediction at my church is the fruit of the spirit. And I'll sometimes say patience a little louder because that's the one that I know <laughs> that I'm really wrestling with, you know, that 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 morning or that week or whatever. Um, but so so for me, patience is is a a biblical and theological call mm -hmm. to check ourselves and to not be so deeply driven by or or overwhelmed by the dictates of our age of acceleration and the way it manifests itself in our, our own daily lives. And, you know, one of the books that I think um, lays out a different way of being that uh, I sometimes think about in this regard uh, is uh, Casual Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day, mm -hmm. um, because it presents a life of kind of just steady, slow commitment to uh, a fixed aim. And so being a butler is likely not the fixed aim that most of us have in our day-to-day -day lives, but yet there's a sense through his life of what he's kind of given himself and committed himself to. And it that fixed aim enables him to, to kind of, withstand, or that's probably not even the right word, to not be driven by the whims and caprices of the present moment. Now, obviously, that book is then challenging at the end of his life. Was this the right way to live? Ought I not to have lived more for myself? Mm. And that can present another pole of where, you know, if we're completely um, emptying ourselves from what we might feel drawn to or desirous of in the present moment that we can ultimately miss out on life in that way too. But I just feel like right now we don't need correctives in that direction. We need correctives in the other direction. We need, we need literary figures and certainly flesh and blood figures that show us the beauty of a quiet, committed, faithful way of living mm -hmm. that is not driven by a sense of my life has worth only if my life is signaling that I'm keeping up with the flows of the present moment. Yeah. Um, so that's the way I tend to think about patience is over against the harried way that our culture almost tells us we have to live if our lives are going to be meaningful. Yeah. For me, I think patience, um, you know, I think in, endurance, right. And I think, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the usage, what we have, in our script, New Testament text as, as patience really is kind of that mm -hmm. idea. patient endurance really is maybe maybe a fuller way of thinking about it. So so I think in those terms, I mean, I think I've also been helped by, you know, ancient Christians and how patience was defined in contrast to sorrow, um, which I think draws mm -hmm. a little bit on some of the uh, uh, Latin lesson you were giving us at the beginning, Jessica, which is helpful. Um, and I think from, yeah, just from that tradition, really seeing that patience is uh, the virtue that keeps us from abandoning God in the face mm -hmm. of sorrow, trial, suffering. And obviously the prime example, uh, you know, being Job, right, is, is somebody who who does yeah. not abandon God in the face of sorrow because of this patient endurance. Uh, James uh, 5, uh, 10 and 11 really, really draw this out, right? Um, uh, blessed are those who, who uh, showed endurance. You've heard of the patient endurance of Job, right? All, all these sort of things. Uh, and I think that also ties into the, uh, the Beatitudes, Uh Jesus teaches, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, the shall is this future, right? So you, it's going to require patience, right? God is going to have to provide us with so patience good. in our sorrow in order to endure, right? So, so, I, so I think that view from ancient Christians, I think has really helped me have a fuller sense of patience. And then when I think about it in those terms, the novels that I'm drawn to, uh, I know Karen talks about the road in, um, uh, uh, in her book, but yeah. I can't remember what chapter it is, but I, I now think of the road as a novel about hope. Patient, 
uh, hope. Yeah. And that makes sense as well, right? So many of these are connected faith, patience, endurance, hope, all these things are connected, but I do think of the road now, uh, through that lens of patient endurance, right. Um, and not patience in the sense of slow, but just continual, like not giving in to despair, the father and the son, not giving in to like, Hey, we're just, we can't survive. Let's give up. They, they continue to push and push and push. They don't abandon life light. God in the face of r- r- real debauchery, they they continue. So so I think patience contrasts us up and helped by the tradition um, that's put those together. Oh, that's so good. I was just thinking, you guys are talking about the moviegoer for your lit pulpit, and that is really a book in which the character is trying to understand this idea of patience and doesn't have it at the beginning. Sorry to ruin it, but Percy has an epigraph in which he says the specific character of despair is precisely this. It is unaware of being despair. Mm. So this, the necessity of acknowledging the sorrow so that you can practice the virtue of patience so that you can have hope, right? That you build up this character towards hope, but it comes first with the knowledge, the awareness. And I think that's what literature can really help us with it it shows us the reality of the situation. And especially for those who are in suffering or are in pain or are in sorrow, if they don't know how to see that correctly, if they can't contextualize that correctly, it can just lead to despair or it can help them practice patience towards hope and towards something new. And that's something that that Philip Yancey and I are going to be talking about is John Donne and his devotions are written from a place moving from like, why me, God, from a Job place to okay, how do I respond now? What fruit can I bear through this suffering? And I think patience is probably what comes out of this devotions. And then for any of us reading it, hopefully it comes in our own lives as well. That's really interesting, you know, and, and um, to kind of connect patience as suffering and, and endurance with patience uh, as a countercultural move in the face of a accelerated age. Uh, one of the things that sociologists are drawing our attention to now, uh, the foremost Hartmut Rosa, the German sociologist, is that our accelerated pace of life actually yields in a sense of despair and low grade, little mm. d depression. Uh, but we often don't see that because we're so, but we just sense a malaise. And, yeah. but ultimately what that is, is this sense of despair when we're just not keeping up with the flows. Like we're looking around on Instagram and Facebook and everybody else seems to be keeping up, but we're not. And, you know, we're tired and we're chasing things and it's just going faster. And the life experience is feeling flattened and hollowed out. It's becoming gray. And that's this lurking sense of despair uh, to where a countercultural practice of patience is ultimately an antidote that can be there to that. But if you don't recognize it as despair, <laughs> then you don't know what it is that's causing life to just feel gray and flat and why that sense of malaise is is ultimately there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I say it's fantastic. Despair is not fantastic. (laughs) Not a good thing. But I feel like we're really hitting on something that is true about how to not be those people that are in despair and how to practice these virtues to move us out of it. And people always say that, well, not always, but there's a lot of talk about how literature is worthless and pointless and escapism. And we're, we're saying the opposite. No, it could be an antidote to the mental health crisis that we're each of us facing at different points of our day Mm. and different different seasons of life, Mm. right? It could actually show us and make us aware of the things that are causing us to despair. Which simply means that the world all need to listen to the scandal of reading. (laughs) Hooten Wilson, Claude Asho, and Austin Carty. We have the answers. All the we answers. have them. All of them. <laughs> no, but I really do hope that we are pointing to the books that do and that can help us practice that. So stay tuned for my conversation with Philip Yancey on John Donne, you know, 400 years ago, his writings on devotions um, in the time of plague, actually, to, to help endure the sickness that he was suffering from. So thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate programs. 
Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Welcome, everyone, to the Scandal of Reading podcast, uh, my community of friends that I invite into conversation about interesting books. And today I'm excited because Philip Yancey, who I grew up underneath and who my father had books and books of his on the shelves, is actually agreed to be with us today to talk about John Donne, which is so exciting. So thank you, Philip, for being here. I'm delighted. And yeah, I get that a lot. I grew up under... Uh, my father, my grandfather, my grandmother loved your books, you know, but we're talking about, about a book even older than me, a <laughs> uh, 400-year-old book by John Donne. Yeah, well, a lot of my greatest teachers are actually not living anymore, so this is yes. fun to get to talk to. <laughs> to living teachers is always fun to get to talk about those who mentored them, and you discuss in your book, The Soul Survivor, you call John Donne one of your 13 mentors. Right. So, how did you come to have a 400-year-old mentor? I was in my 20s. I started doing articles for Reader's Digest. They had a column at the time called Drama in Real Life. And there are these tragedies where a grizzly bear would attack somebody or a canoe would overturn or somebody would get frozen to death in a blizzard. And each time as I interviewed the people, they said, uh, you know what was hardest of all? When I was in the hospital trying to recover, these Christians would come in and they would all have a different theory about what's happening. Some would say, uh, you know, God is is punishing you for some sin that you did. And others would come in and say, no, it's not God, it's Satan. Mm -hmm. And others would come in and say, well, no, it's not Satan, it's God. But not because he's punishing you. He chose you to be a great example to other people. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're especially loved by God and they're just trying to get well, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to say to these people. I'm in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And I came across this book, oh, the 400-year-old book, John Donne. I, I think it had won a title for the worst appealing title, <laughs> uh, Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. Who's going to pick up that book? <laughs> and yet it is so good that it's been in print for 400 years. It's mm -hmm. never been out of print. Mm -hmm. And I bought copies of it. I was so impressed by it. The wisdom in it. I bought copies and started giving them to my friends who were going through some hard time physically. And I, I checked back with them and say, did you read it? Did you read it? Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, I tried, but I, well, how far did you get? Oh, maybe the first page. <laughs> I said, that's great. You got to read the whole book. <laughs> but there were some barriers in that book. It, it's King James English, you know, 400 mm -hmm. years ago. And it was also, um, full of kind of weird science. State-of-the-art medicine back then was applying pigeons to your <laughs> mouth or feet to get to get rid of the vapors and uh, blooding, bloodletting and cupping and, you know, just the strange stuff. So people would say that if that's true, I can't really trust this book. What does it have to to do with me in, in the 21st century or 20th at the time? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I had this idea of doing... Uh, to John Donne, mm -hmm. what many people have been doing to the Bible. So in those days, it was Ken Taylor, Living Letters, and then mm -hmm. uh, more recently, Eugene Peterson, The Message. We did that to a lot of King James versions just to make it more accessible. Mm -hmm. And I, I was so impressed uh, that I agreed to take the, the daring <laughs> leap mm -hmm. of trying to uh, bring John Donne into more modern language. Not, not to change, to change as little as possible. Mm -hmm. But to streamline it and um, cut some of those 200-word sentences down to size and make it more accessible to the modern reader. Yeah, I love that. I wish I had a beautiful cover to kind of show anybody mm -hmm. who's like watching the YouTube version, but I printed everything. Oh, very good. <laughs> oh, um, well, I don't do as well on eBooks. I always have to like print it out. Yeah, but, sure. Um, I love the title because, of course, it it steals that pivy poem that you quote mm. John Dunn and Dunn undone. Right. I thought that was really clever. And I think the project is fascinating being able to bring this into modern English so that more people can access Dunn's devotions. If, mm. if everyone's like me, when I was in public school, we read a few of John Dunn's sure. son sonnets and that's about all I got. Sure. And then of course, as a professor later, I, I taught Dunn more and more. Um, Leland Riken has actually like a devotional mm using John Donne's poetry. 
mm-hmm. which is really well done. Um, but I'd never read the devotions. And so I've only, I have not read the King James versions. I've only now read your version of the devotions. <laughs> I, like so I, don't, I can't do a comparison. You're like, you're going to have to do a lot of the comparison for me. Um, but did you worry at all about, you know, the process and maybe you can explain more about your process, like how you would sit down with each devotion and what you would walk through and what were kind of your parameters or rules for both protecting his art and passing it down well but also making it as accessible as possible to 21st century readers. Yes. Well, let's go back to how John Dunn wrote it. Okay. Uh, He was at the time the vicar, so the kind of senior pastor, we would say, of the largest church in England, St. Paul's Cathedral, Mm -hmm. still the largest church in England. And uh, he had quite an interesting past. He grew up as a Catholic in a time when Catholics were being persecuted by the Protestants. Had a hard time getting a job, frankly, because of his Catholic background. And finally, he converted to the Church of England. And some people gossiped about him. It it was a conversion of convenience. He's just trying to get a job. Mm -hmm. But he worked his way up. He was very uh, eloquent. He was known early for his erotic poetry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a lot to gossip about in John Dunn. And people wondered, is he sincere or not? But it mm-hmm. soon became clear he truly was converted and truly was sincere. And not only that, he was a great orator. And uh, you can still buy uh, collections of his sermons that also have survived four centuries. Mm-hmm. In the midst of this terrible plague, the bubonic plague, so we know about pandemics, don't we? Well, mm-hmm. London in the 17th century had one wave of bubonic plague after another. And one third of London died. One third fled the city to move out into the country to get away. So here's this almost deserted city. But people wanted to find out what is God trying to tell us. So they flocked to hear John Donne, this great orator. And he was really the comforter of all of, the, of, all of London. And then one day he came down with an illness that everybody, including his doctors, assumed was the plague. So he's lying in bed, just kind of feeling sorry for himself. Now, how could this happen? Here I am supposed to be the the one who brings comfort to my city, and mm-hmm. I've got a fever. I I'm sick. They tell me I will probably die. He couldn't even access the Bible. He couldn't mm-hmm. access his source books. He had to just lie in bed all day, and in that kind of feverish state, he started writing this book. He was sick for about six weeks. It turned out it wasn't the bubonic plague he had. It was something like spotted fever. But he thought it was. He thought he was dying, and so did his doctors. So he went through what the whole city was going through. And here's one of the great minds, one of the great uh, penmen (laughs) uh, of of English letters, wrestling with God. Mm -hmm. So the writing reflects that kind of feverish state. Uh, He misquotes some passages in the Bible. And he also spends a lot of time on what we would consider kind of extraneous matter, the, mm-hmm. the science, the old science that I was telling you about. So I, I trimmed a lot of that, and then I trimmed some of the very obscure references to Greek mythology or some of the really very obscure references to Bible passages, some of which he got wrong, mainly because the only way they would be helpful would be to have a long explanation in a footnote or something. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have it for something who were... For, for people who are in the middle of this pandemic, people with COVID who are at home wanting to know what does God, how does God relate to what's going on in this global crisis? Was God behind it? What can we learn from it? These questions are exactly the same questions mm-hmm. that John Dunn asked in 1623. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make it as immediately uh, relevant as possible to what we were going through mm-hmm. in 2020. 21 and 22. Yeah. As you're talking, I was thinking about the book of Job Mm. because here you have someone who's the upstanding kind of the Christian exemplar. So Job, of course, not being Christian exemplar yet, but like just being an exemplary righteous man of God. And when he's sick, his friends try to comfort him with all the wrong words. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like Dunn, even as he goes through each devotion, kind of throws out the wrong words. It's almost (laughs) like he's, interacting with himself and dialoguing back and forth saying, you know, is this the way it is? Is this what you're doing, God? It can't be. 
and right. and kind of has that that dialogic element even within each devotion. Yes, very much like Augustine's Confessions, he writes in the yeah. second person to God, saying, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and, and because he had this kind of randy, uh, unsavory past, he's thinking, "Well, uh, maybe it's because of the things I did wrong as a young mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe God has nailed me to my bed." Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and then he starts thinking, "Well, is is that the God that I worship? This kind of vengeful God, or what comfort can I get from?" God, what, what resources do I have to get me through this thing? You know, Jessica, pretty early on in the pandemic, Time Magazine was covering it, and they figured, well, we must have a religious person in here. So they went to N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, mm -hmm. which is a very good choice. Yeah. And they said, uh, what would you have to say in the midst of this global crisis? And he said, well, the word that comes to my mind is lament. The first mm -hmm. word is lament. You know, we this is not a good thing. The world is suffering and God surely, surely help us, give us some, some, something to hang on to here. And there's a lot of lam laments, like lamentations. There's a whole mm -hmm. book in the Bible and much of many of the Psalms, but of course the whole book of Job and um, uh, various ones of the prophets. And, and Dunn goes through that first, the lamenting of what's going on in his city, the people mm -hmm. around him and then in himself and trying to truly wrestle with God. And if you if you trim away the stuff that is kind of old fashioned now, mm -hmm. those questions that he asks and, and the very words he uses in asking them are exactly what we were going through, mm -hmm. in, especially in the early days of the, of the pandemic when the whole world was afraid. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful discovery to be able to turn to it in the course of having a pandemic because mm -hmm. you know when you write on it in Soul Survivor, we had not yet gone through the 2020 right. epidemic. So you had talked about some of the epidemic, you know, you sur survived in 1942, the mm -hmm. polio epidemic. Um, and then of course, we just have this cycle in which this is constantly happening. But even if it's not that level, if it's not worldwide crisis, every single person goes through pain, sure. crisis, suffering. And you really bring Dunn as a model who moves through that journey of doubt or why me into a place of saying, okay, how do I respond? And I love that trajectory that you outlined where you say John is, uh, John Dunn's catechized by his affliction. Do you mind explaining that process and how you see that worked out in his devotions? Right. I, I guess I would express it this way. Uh, his first prayer, as would be most of ours, is God make me well <laughs> right away, yeah. you know. And uh, that's natural. Uh, I'm the same way. Uh, but then every once in a while, you're going to run into something where there's not an easy solution like that. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is a person I know you you know well. Mm -hmm. And she came up with a line in her book, The Mind of the Maker, that I think is appropriate here. She said, life is not a problem to be solved, mm -hmm. but a work to be made. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a work to be made. And a lot of people will wish that life was a problem to be solved and think that God is the solution. So if something bad happens, you just pray and it goes away. Well, sometimes it doesn't. I, I wrote a memoir a couple of years ago called Where the Light Fell. And it's, it starts out with the defining event in my life, which took place when I was only one year old. And that was when my father got polio, was, was paralyzed was planning to be a missionary and, and had thousands of people praying for him. And they were so convinced he would be healed that he they removed him from an iron lung, which was allowing him to breathe. And he showed a few days of may, maybe some improvement, but then he died. Mm -hmm. And and the effect of that on my mother, which was an error in theology, she mm -hmm. took on, she took on um, a right that she didn't really have to decide when, when God was going to act and when God wasn't. Mm -hmm. And, and so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, she, she theologically couldn't lament. You know, you can't, you can't argue with God. Well, actually, you can. You know, mm -hmm. God gives us the words in the book of Job and Lamentations, these other places. Mm -hmm. and, and John Dunn uh, paved the way. He, he said, even though I'm a vicar and I'm the, you know, the number one uh, person in, in the mm -hmm. Church of England, uh, I don't like this. <laughs> God, this is wrong, mm -hmm. <laughs> much like Job did. Mm 
-hmm. And uh, so he, he's a, a model for us that, that we can use just in, in giving words to what we're feeling, but maybe sometimes are afraid to say, yeah. to say out, out loud. And I think the turning point for him, and it goes back to that passage that you, you and I both read in high school, uh, mm -hmm. don't, don't ask to know who, for whom the bell tolls, the bell tolls for you. That was the turning point because in the early part of the book, he's feeling sorry for himself and he's mostly concerned with how bad he feels. Mm -hmm. And then he hears these bells and, and first he's struck with fear. Well, uh, do they know something I don't know? Mm -hmm. Have the doctors told them I'm about to die? Is this the bell announcing my death? Mm -hmm. And then he realizes probably it's really about uh, someone in my congregation who's died. And here I haven't even thought about that much, you know, yeah. and, and maybe I should be turning my attention to them, uh, to pray for them instead of just mm -hmm. being so self-absorbed all the time. So that was a turning point. And he catechized by affliction. It's a complicated phrase, but I think a very good phrase. What mm -hmm. What can I learn? Back to that Dorothy Sayers, it's it's a work to be made. And and when you when you survey people, at what time did you grow most spiritually? About 80% of the time, they'll tell you a hard time, often with mm -hmm. illness or a, a child born with, with health problems or something like that. Mm -hmm. Most of the times when we're our faith is pressed, when we're we're pushed into that kind of wrestling match with God, and and the promise that we have in the Bible, it's not that God's going to take away all of our problems, but it's got, it's a way in which God can use those to make us better people, more like Jesus, yeah. who, of course, was, was a man who knew it, affliction as well. So that's that phrase, catechized by affliction, is mm -hmm. is really a summary of, of the book that John Donne wrote. In, in what way can I imagine God using this bad thing mm -hmm. for good mm -hmm. in my life and in and the world, and my goodness, the book itself yes. is the answer to that. You know, yes. here's yes. this gift, so that we don't have to all go through that uh, without a guide. We have yeah. a guide in front of us who can teach us. Yeah, work to be made. So I have, I have about a dozen questions just from what you said. Um, first, I wanted to read that passage, mm. the okay. passing bell, and maybe we kind of unpack it a little bit more. But also, would just love to talk about making things out of your suffering, which is exactly what happens in this book for both him and for you. And so I want to get back to that too. So this is in your book, it's Devotion 19. I don't remember what number it is in Dunn's. Do you? Uh, 17, I think. Okay. Yeah. So people probably need to go back and forth but between them. But in yours, it's the passing bell. And it is the passage that's probably most familiar to people um, and again, of course, Hemingway steals it for a title of his book. So people hear all it all the time yeah. too. But I'm going to just begin with, if we truly grasped the gravity of this passing bell, so the bell that you were talking about that um, tolls and says that someone has passed away, we would rise early to contemplate its meaning. For all of us will die, not just the one who lies at death's door. The bell tolls for whoever thinks it does and gives us an occasion to prepare for the time when we will be united to God. Who doesn't look up to the sun when it rises or to a comet when it streaks across the sky? Who doesn't incline his ear to a bell wondering what prompted it? This bell that I hear signifies a passing of a piece of myself from this world. No one is an island, isolated and self-contained. If a chunk of earth be washed away by the sea, Europe is diminished as much as if it were a promontory or a friend's manor or my own. Anyone's death diminishes me because I am involved in all humanity. Therefore, never ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you and for me. Yeah, do you mind unpacking? That is such a beautiful passage. And you do, <laughs> you do really well um, making it accessible, but still so beautiful. Mm, it is indeed beautiful. Yes, I, I did a few books with uh, a surgeon named Dr. Mm -hmm. Paul Brand. Fearfully and Wonderfully Made was the first, and then one called The Gift of Pain. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Brand was, was one of the people who discovered and then proved that all of the terrible abuse that we see in leprosy comes because they don't feel pain. The, the disease, does, it affects nerve cells. And when they don't feel pain, then they start damaging themselves. They may rake all day with a, with a rake that has splinters in it and get an infection mm -hmm. because of a splinter going in their, in their hands. Or very simply, about a third of people with leprosy go blind because they lack that little pain cell that 
makes us blink about 28,000 times a day. And if you just hold your eyes open and and try not to blink after a few minutes, it's going to hurt a lot. But they don't feel that pain because the nerve has has been damaged. And so they leave it open all day and their eye dries out and ultimately they go blind. So uh, he... Dr. Ram was the only person I've ever met who said, thank God for pain. If there was one gift I could give to my patients, it would, it would be the gift of pain. Mm. And um, well, it's kind of hard to keep in mind when you're, when you're uh, mm-hmm. sick. Mm-hmm. But one of the things Dr. Brand said to me, th- this is a, a lesson to us. He said, a, a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain. It's a body that tends to the pain of the weakest part. And, and I think that's what John Dunn is saying. He's saying that that bell, that bell is reminding me that there are other people out there mm-hmm. and every one of them is valuable. And if they, if they happen to die because of this mm-hmm. disease, if that's the person, this country is less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Part of it has gone away. No one is an island and our job is to unify. Our job is to pay attention to those weakest parts, whether it's, say, Ukraine right now or, mm-hmm. or places where, where Christians are suffering. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's part of who we are. And, and that's why, in Dunn's words, that's why I need to quit thinking just about myself mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and think about the body that you have assigned to me, Lord, uh, the body to care about in my church and in, in London. That was the turning point and that, you know, no one is an island. Yeah. We don't suffer alone. We dare not. And we dare not let anyone suffer alone. Mm-hmm. We should go to them and bring that. Uh, I love this phrase in Second Corinthians 1, the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I got to tell you here, here was a chance in the pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID pandemic, a chance for the church to act in that comforting way. I don't think we did a very good job. You know, we added to the division and strife. And churches would split over issues like wearing masks. Yeah. And and here's a world that really was looking for answers and was looking for for help. And I don't think we did very well on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would go back to uh, John Dunn's day because mm-hmm. he faced some of the same issues, but he came up with a, a little better solution than I think most of the church that, that I've seen in the U.S. offered. Yeah, you know, he talks about, um, or you actually analyze him and say that, you know, he began looking outward rather than just be looking self-serving. And I think the epidemic made all of us kind of turn inward, protect ourselves, protect our own homes, protect our, um, our needs. And, and yeah. death was the great evil versus, as yeah. you're saying, some of the great evil is, is not being able to respond well to the suffering, right, and respond right. well to the pain. Right. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, there's a huge change in how we handle death in the 21st century and how people back in all, all of the rest of century, mm-hmm. the other rest of history, and especially in John Dunn's day, uh, a woman named Lydia Dugdale, Dr. Lydia Dugdale, wrote yeah. a book called The Art of Dying. You may have come across it. Love it. And yeah, and she describes how death was a big deal that you planned for. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wrote a book called The Art of Dying. And you would prepare for it, and you would bring all your relatives, you would bring mm-hmm. your your close friends, and one by one they would file into your room, and you would mm-hmm. kind of give them a blessing, a little bit like Jacob or Abraham, you know, these yeah. patriarchs, and and just uh, get ready to die because your mm-hmm. your days are not ending; they're continuing somewhere mm-hmm. else. So you kind of sum up your life, and and in a way, John Dunn was doing that too because he mm-hmm. thought he was dying. Turns out he wasn't, but. Um, Compare that to how, you know, we put people away in hospitals. And, of course, in the pandemic, you weren't even allowed in the hospital. So, mm-hmm. so many people died alone without human touch. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very sad. Or people in memory care centers and, mm-hmm. and uh, nursing homes. Um, it was a very sad thing. And we Christians should have jumped in and found a way to, to solve that. And said, you know, we, we too are infected by that kind of fear of death mm-hmm. that pervades our society. Yeah. And this book, in some ways, both for you and for him, seems like you are making a work out of the suffering. In some in some sense, it's like you realize that you belong to other people. So you write for other people 
rather than just take the lessons you've learned and improve yourself and get better and deal with your own pain, you realize the necessity of looking out and making something. In that sense, do you, I mean, writing becomes an act of hope. Writing mm-hmm. becomes a way of, of reaching out beyond the suffering. You're right. And in the midst of this project, I had my own wake-up call. Uh, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which is when it, they call it idiopathic, which means doctors have no clue where it comes from. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things that happens. And uh, went through a very minor version of what John did struggle with because mm-hmm. his, his life was it in jeopardy. My life is not in any immediate jeopardy, but mm-hmm. I will face a, a degeneration. I'm coming to terms mm-hmm. with it every day. And um, it, it certainly does change how you see your life, the assumptions you make, and it changes mm-hmm. a lot how you view other people. Um, shortly after I got the, the diagnosis, I was on an airplane and there were these people up in first class and one man was kind of elderly and probably had Parkinson's. I could see tremors and he was fumbling around trying to get his suitcases out of the, of the bin above him and, and kept falling into his seat and people behind me were getting so anxious because, you know, I got a, I got another plane to catch. Mm-hmm. Get, let's get rid of that guy. And I thought, well, that could be me in a few years, you know. How would I like to be treated? Mm-hmm. And even something so simple as being much more sensitive to disabled people around you, mm-hmm. uh, to suffering people around you, that, that's an easy one that yeah. immediately, immediately hits you in your face when you're one of those disabled people. Mm-hmm. You, you say in that devotion where you write about that experience that pain redeemed impresses you more than pain removed, mm. which I thought was a beautiful line and it seems like that's a lesson that you've also learned by going through Dunn's writing by writing these pieces yourself were were there other lessons that not just reading but actually writing these things taught you Hmm. yeah that that phrase actually came to me while i was working on Dunn, and it, it goes back to those early days when i was in my 20s writing running into these questions for the very first time. And one of the first people I did a profile on was a young woman who was planning to go into the Olympics. She did uh, horseback riding, dressage, and she was competitive. And she went swimming one day in the Chesapeake Bay and and dove into the water and hit a rock and was Mm -hmm. paralyzed. So uh, I had never been around a paralyzed person before. And here's this beautiful, young, very accomplished, athletic-looking woman, mm-hmm. but sitting in a chair, unable to move her, her arms or her legs. And as she told me her story, she started crying. And, and she said, Philip, sorry to bother you. Could, could you go in the bathroom and give me a Kleenex and, and wipe my eyes? And, and so I did. And she said, I'm so ashamed. I, I, I can't imagine living this life where... I can't do anything on my own. I can't move. I can't feed myself. I can't go to the bathroom. I can't even cry mm-hmm. without help. And, you know, I'm in my early 20s. I've never run into a situation like this. Mm-hmm. And that woman's name was Johnny Erickson. Johnny Erickson oh. Tata. <laughs> and years later, I was there when she celebrated her uh, 70th birthday, which is far longer than most people in her condition live. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen her over the years. She took that, I, I remember those words, I can't imagine going on living like this. And then she took that curse, as it seemed mm-hmm. at the time, and turned it, she redeemed it. It turned mm-hmm. it into a blessing. She became a prophetess for the church who organizes uh, around the world a global outreach to people mm-hmm. and, and just sensitized us in the church to the disabled. Yeah. And uh, that's was such a shiny example to me because mm-hmm. I knew her back then mm-hmm. when she was lamenting, doing nothing but lamenting. And then uh, in her 70s, and she had breast cancer, she had COVID, mm-hmm. she had, you know, she, she is a person who has known affliction. Mm-hmm. And yet she's a joyful, accomplished. And I remember her saying uh, in older age, I'm, that was the best day of my life. Mm-hmm because I was just on track to be one of these typical suburban housewives, you know, running the kids to soccer matches and Mm -hmm. so I could get back and ride my horse with no real meaning in my life. And instead Mm -hmm. God gave me a purpose and and fulfilled it. Redeemed that kind of redeemed pain 
surely oppresses me more than being removed. If she had just yeah. been healed suddenly, which she prayed for urgently, but yeah. it didn't happen. And and she took the the raw material that God gave her, which was against her desire, and mm-hmm. allowed God to create a great work of art out of it. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, if I can, if I can ask you one more question on that, because I, I, I keep thinking about O'Connor. I'm trying so hard not to quote O'Connor over and over again, but as someone who, <laughs> yeah, right. has, you know, she was dying of lupus. And so she has all these great quotes, you know, um, sickness before death is a real blessing. And, uh, you know, with one eye closed, I can, one eye squinted, I can see it as a, as a blessing. And um, sickness before death is more instructive than a trip to Europe. I mean, she has just all these great <laughs> lines. Um, but it really is a theology, as you mentioned, that helps you be able to address the pain that way, be able to respond. You, you spoke of your mother not having the right theology that allowed for lament. And Dunn even talks about how all of his training in theology, he still doesn't know how to interpret some of the passages in scripture. He doesn't understand the meaning of some of these things because it's not clear cut. There's no bumper sticker in the Bible that says, when you suffer, this is how you respond, right? It's not, there's not a, just a clear answer for every single person. So as you kind of speak out to people who are going to be reading your book, what do you want them to be learning about how to have a theology that sees pain rightly and knows how to respond to it well? Um, What will they get here? And then maybe what they can get elsewhere or how they can practice this in their own lives. Right. Dunn is very helpful, I think, in dealing with the issue of fear. He talks about that uh, quite a bit. He would see the doctors out in the hallway kind of in, in muted yeah. tones, you know, discussing his case. And, and that'll make you paranoid right away, you know, bringing in new doctors, to these experts. And anybody who's been through uh, chemo and MRIs and all that, you know, it's yeah. just a scary thing because it's so complicated. You don't understand it. You're not sure that you're getting the whole story from the mm-hmm. medical people. And as he names those fears, he says, I need a fear that takes care of all the other fears. And, and finally he, he decides that's what I'm facing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I fear God, but, but it's a fear that I don't need to be afraid of. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I fear God in the proper way, kind of the, the old Testament way of, of, of fearing God, just being aware mm-hmm. that God is, is this sovereign, um, amazing being who created trillions mm-hmm. of galaxies and mm-hmm. yet promises that we matter, individuals yes. matter, and, and God is somehow concerned about every sparrow that falls mm-hmm. and everyone who cries. And, and Dunn uh, wisely saw that lived out in Jesus, because it's easy in the Old Testament, you read Job, to think mm-hmm. of God as this very distant, uh, scary being. Mm-hmm. And Jesus showed us what God is really like. God is a God of grace and mercy and comfort. And um, every person that Jesus encountered who asked, he, he did heal, he did make whole. So what we learn from that is that God wants us well and whole, but God's primary goal on earth is not just to solve every little problem that comes up. Uh, he, he wants us to trust him to take whatever happens to us and, and somehow good can be made of it. The promise we have, and you go back to Romans 8, because Paul talks about the groanings of creation, so you know, kind of a cosmic picture. And then he also talks about his own biography at the end. He talks about you know, shipwreck and snake bite and torture <laughs> and, and uh, imprisonment and all these things. And then there's that verse right in the middle of the passage where, where he says that all of these things God works for our good. It doesn't say oh, God only gives us good things. Right. But he says, in all of those things, God works for our good. Mm-hmm. A work can be made. A good mm-hmm. work can come out of bad things. And uh, when you when you really study Paul's life, that's quite a statement. Yeah. And at the end of the chapter, he's got that doxology of praise. You, nothing can separate me from God's love. Mm-hmm. You know, not space, not time. Not, and he yeah. just he, anything you can think of, he tries to include in that paragraph. And, and that is a promise we have. I mean, people mm-hmm. wear a cross around their neck. Why, why are they doing that? What a terrible symbol, this execution mm-hmm. symbol. But it's the day we call Good Friday. Yeah. 
not awful Friday, not worst Friday ever, you know, which it was the murder of God's own son. Mm -hmm. God sent his son to, to live among us and we killed him. Mm -hmm. And, and yet somehow God took that and made something good out of it, the salvation of the world and the identification with, with whatever may happen to us. Mm -hmm. So that's a promise that we have. It's, it's not, uh, that bad things are going to happen. They do happen. They will happen. And I, I think about as many people, as many Christians got COVID as non-Christians proportionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that as many Christians die as non-Christians, 100%. You yeah. know? <laughs> so um, but you, you just can't assume that God's going to solve every problem in the way we want God to. Yeah. But you can count on the fact of a, a, a God that welcomes our laments and welcomes our fears and, mm. and is the God of all comfort, the Father of compassion, and wants to make a work out of us. Uh, yes. Just like Jesus said to the man who was blind, he said, uh, the disciples are saying, well, what did he do wrong? You know, mm -hmm. In utero, what did he do wrong? You know, yeah. What can you do wrong? How can you sin in the womb? Yeah. But uh, he said, no, but the works of God will be manifest in him. Mm -hmm. And, and in, in his case, he was healed because Jesus was there in right. person. In Johnny Erickson's case, she was not healed, but yeah. the works of God were manifested. Yeah, I love that. That's so gorgeous that a work can be made from you. And then if you look at, of course, done and a work is made yes. out of his suffering, right? Yes. That lasts 400 years or a work is made out of Paul's suffering in his letters. And then, you know, a work is made out of all the things that you've gone through and have given us. And I think that all of us in our own ways are, are works being made. That's beautiful. So. Right. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I look forward to future encounters that are not recorded <laughs> and getting to uh, build on a friendship that just began in this short time. And I hope that all the listeners also feel invited into a place of friendship in the church where they can ask these questions, where they can listen to this again, uh, and where they can read John Dunn's devotions and be uplifted. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, the name of the book again, Jessica, is Undone, and and that's how we feel, you know, in the COVID uh, environment. It's a good example. The whole world came undone for me. Yeah. Undone, and, and but remade in him. <laughs> absolutely, redone. This redone. Undone, redone. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. On that note, thank you all. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.